the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Dr. David Anderson, senior pastor and founder of Bridgeway Community Church in Columbia, Maryland. And I am so glad that you are tuned in now to our new special Saturday edition of Real Talk with Dr. David Anderson. You're going to hear conversations from recent talks where I've connected with radio listeners just like you to help them build bridges of reconciliation, race, religion, relationships. Are you ready? Let's get started. Pastor Scott, welcome to Real Talk. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Dr. Anderson. Pleasure to be here. So good to have you on the air. You wrote this book, and the title is White as Sin. We just got to start right there. Where did that (laughs) title come from? Well, uh, you know, I started out to write a book that was everything I ever wanted to say about multicultural ministry because, I've, like you, I've been at it a while. Mm -hmm. And um, the first question I came to is, why is this so hard? Mm. And uh, that became the entire book. Wow. And when I started thinking about why it was so hard, that led me to look at at racial attitudes, white racial attitudes, and say, where do these come from? Oh, wow. And as I did, uh, they looked shadier and shadier. (laughs) Wow. Well, you know, is that what prompted you to write the book when you started kind of asking yourself the question, why is this so difficult, that it was almost like a personal journey before it was like a theological study or for it meant to be a book? Oh, very much so. I mean, it was. this was an existential question from the get-go rather than a theoretical one. I uh. mean, um, because I'd been involved in this, and, uh, you know, there are lots of books and studies that tell you what, the what about our racial dysfunction in this country, and they can describe it, but I wanted to know why. Huh. And so then you talk about this term racial haughtiness, which is a theme throughout uh, sort of a subtext of the book. What is racial haughtiness? Well, you know, we, we talk a lot about racism, and uh, racism is very real, but sometimes the, our conversations about racism become kind of surreal because mm. not everybody means the same thing when they say the term. Mm. And uh, so, and certainly nobody wants to admit that they're racist because that right. kind of makes you a pariah. So if right. you have to get people to admit that they're racist in order to solve the problem, then you've got a real uphill battle huh. in front of you. So I started thinking, well, is there another way to look at this, another perspective, another way to get a hold of this issue? And as I looked at it from the uh, scriptural point of view, what I was looking at looked like haughtiness hmm. in, the, in the Bible. And uh, if ha- I may... Haughtiness I, meaning pride. Well, kind of, haughtiness is kind of like, I would call it a first cousin of pride. Huh. Is it a mix between arrogance and pride? Kind like, of, yeah. Uh, they got married and had a child? <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. I mean, pride in some contexts, you know, p- people will talk about pride in your work or pride in your heritage. Yeah. Some things, even in some contexts, pride can even be kind of positive. Yeah. But haughtiness never is positive uh-huh. because haughtiness requires an inferior foil. It requires somebody that hmm. you're going to be better than. It's not just feeling positive about yourself, which could be pride, wow. but it's feeling positive about yourself by denigrating somebody else. Wow. And so that's why I landed on that to describe this whole attitude that is behind not only what we call racism, but all of the kinds of things that all of the kinds of oppression and, and uh, uh, discrimination that have come uh, 
we've seen in our history. White as Sin is the title of the book, A New Paradigm for Racial Healing. If you want to talk about this topic with us and with the author of the book, all you have to do is give us a call at 888-43-BRIDGE. Before I go to my call line, I need to ask you, Pastor Scott, uh, in writing this book, who was your audience once you realized, okay, I'm just writing because of the problem that I'm having, and now you're writing it and saying, no, it's going to be a book now. Were you thinking about who's going to be reading this book? Well, the, the target audience is kind of twofold, but primarily I'm working toward communicating with white thought leaders. Uh-huh. Uh, so there are people who may be academics or pastors or people who are involved in multicultural, multiracial ministry, uh, or people who are just educated folks who have an interest in social justice and, so, and themes of this sort. Uh, but they're people who are going to then engage other people and, and influence other people. Uh-huh. Well, when we uh, dive a little bit deeper in the book, we'll talk about a few of its concepts. But right now, let's go to Washington, D.C. and talk to John, uh, who's originally from uh, Durham, North Carolina, but he's working around D.C. Hey, John, welcome to the show today. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm really well. Thanks for taking my call. Um, Pleasure. A little, little nervous to ask these questions, and, and my vernacular and it may not be a, a spot on, so I apologize. But, you know, there's some sensitivities around this issue. And really, I live in South Durham, um, happen to work all up and down the East Coast. But my community in particular, we moved into a very unique spot. It's about 10 minutes south of a historically black college Um North Carolina Central. Okay. And one of the things when I grew up in Denver, I love the Hispanic community, and and I kept seeing you know uh, missionary Baptist community or uh, churches north of me, right. and you know a lot of African American communities, and just wanted to ask for first steps and kind of some pitfalls leaning into you know they they talk about us in a post Christian culture just loving people better. So how can I lean into, you know, more than just shopping at the places and being decent to people? How can I lean into these issues? Are there organizations that are doing this and just mm. being, you know, the, the people that tear down the boundaries and tear down the misconceptions and, and really, you know, build build those bridges? Well, John, it sounds like you have the heart of a bridge builder. and You're saying, what are some first steps I can take to be a better bridge builder? Am I hearing that right? Yeah, because one of the hardest things for me to see is, You've got fraternity, you have Lexuses and Mercedes floating around North Carolina Central, and then the area right there can be kind of, you know, degraded and some homes that need some help and yeah. and just, you know, folks live in life. And so I, you know, I lean into the uncomfortable and I shop at the stores, um, you know, and just try to be a member of the community. But I, I, I really don't know how to dive in because, you know, ethnic communities tend to be very tight and without, you know, kind of an advocate yeah. for me. And yeah. then somebody kind of coming alongside and saying, no, he's cool. He gets it. Right, um, right, right. I don't know where to go. Yeah, so when we talk about racial reconciliation from a white man's perspective, Pastor Scott Garber, I know you've lived in many different contexts. How do you help uh, John uh, sort of integrate even more uh, to be a bridge builder in, uh, among ethnic communities? Any thoughts on that? Well, John, first of all, I'd just like to applaud what you've already done and the yeah. fact that, you, that you're engaging with this issue because it's really easy for us as white folks to live in in a white world and not really care yeah. or not really not really try to learn. So, you know, for me and I think for you probably as well, learning was a big thing. I started out in an inner city ministry and after about 6 months I realized, you know what? I don't have a clue about the <laughs> right. about the culture that I'm working in here. Right. And so I actually had to stop doing what I was doing and go make myself an associate minister in an African American church for two and a half years to just learn the ropes, yeah. to find out how people thought and, and what was going on in that community. 
So I would say that the kinds of engagement that you're looking at and the churches that you talked about, any, especially, I think, contact with Christian people who might have a similar ethos about wanting to, to, to work toward, uh, toward reconciliation. And, but the thing is, you have to just go into those environments as a listener and a learner and not somebody who has to talk and convince everybody or, or make everybody think that you're woke or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, and also I would just add, John, you know, when Jesus went into Samaria, he went uh, and sat at the well where the, he knew that a Samaritan woman would come. And the cool thing I think about that story is the first thing Jesus did, he didn't say, hey, I have something for you that you need. The first thing he did is he asked her for a drink. And so the dignity of, of needing something from someone, to be able to say, you have something I need, that's why I'm here, can you help me with this, I think builds a bridge in a almost a backwards way, you know, because if we go in thinking they need something I have, well, they probably do, but they may not know that yet. So when you say, hey, can you give me a drink? Or, hey, is there a place where I could uh, get X, Y, and Z? I think it's a good leading question because you're saying with dignity, you have something that I need. Can you help me? Absolutely. Dr. Anderson would love for you to join his Facebook page and subscribe to his YouTube channel. Just search Dr. David Anderson on Facebook and click like for Anderson Speaks on YouTube and subscribe. They're a great way for you to connect with and follow Dr. Anderson. Plus, you can watch Dr. Anderson's radio program live or search past episodes. You can also connect with Dr. Anderson and his sponsors at andersonspeaks.com. Real Talk with Dr. David Anderson on Facebook, YouTube, and andersonspeaks.com. Check him out today. Well, listen, folks, 888-432-7434 is the number live in studio. And I'm holding up something called Listen. This is a a book, if you will, that has... uh, collection of stories from voices that need to be heard and Ms. Allie Eastham wrote this and this collection comes from her listening to the stories of people of diversity listen at the Moody Bible Institute that's where I was the first black president of the student body way back in 1980 something something and uh, you know I would hope that boy it's really changed and it's much more diverse now after all of these years well maybe it is maybe it isn't but Allie Eastham is with me today. She's a senior at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, majoring in human services and pre-counseling. After graduation this spring, she plans to take a year off to see where God is leading and what passions he places on her heart. She recently compiled these stories from African-American students on her campus about their life at Moody Allie Easton, welcome to Real Talk with Dr. David Anderson. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. You're a senior at Moody. Before we get started, let people know just a little bit uh, about yourself. And full disclosure, I've known Allie Easton all her life. <laughs> yes, I grew up here in Columbia, Maryland, um, to a Christian home, and I um Grew up at Bridgeway, which is a multicultural church, and ended up attending a very diverse uh, high school. Uh-huh. And I think that played a lot in shaping my worldview. And um, and then I currently attend Moody Bible Institute, which my older brother also attended. Um, and I hope to go into counseling. Well, I went to Moody Bible Institute as well. It was a pretty white school at the time. 
Is it still that white? Yes, okay. it is a predominantly white institute. We do have um, other uh, ethnicity ethnicities that right. do attend the school. Um, I think it's grown in its diversity, but right. it's still predominantly white. Gotcha. So what's it like when you are at the Moody Bible Institute? It's predominantly white. Did that feel did that feel good to you or did that feel kind of odd to you because you came from a multicultural environment? I think it was definitely a mix of emotions. I think um, being white, I think I was able able to rest in that ignorance of not really being able to fully understand what the black students or minority students on campus were going through. So I think being a person who's white, I was able to be comfortable there. I was able to have friends and um, really enjoy my professors and my classes and maybe not see a lot of the problems that were occurring. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I think it was very shocking to be on a campus that was predominantly white. And I think I came to understand a lot of the intricacies mm. um, of a predominantly white institute and it was it was sad i think being um coming from a school that was very diverse coming from a community that was very diverse in a church that was very diverse mm -hmm. and especially a church that celebrated um all of the different cultures mm -hmm. and then entering into um an institute where that they didn't feel as celebrated mm -hmm. um or supported i think it was very hard to see my brothers and sisters go through some of the experiences that they were going through. Do you through. think that you were more sensitive and empathetic because of your upbringing? And I ask that question because how many of those students have come from a predominantly a majority white culture in their church, in their school, in their neighborhood, in their life, and then they go to Moody Bible Institute? Is it possible that they just wouldn't be as empathetic or even see uh, the things that you saw just because of your experience growing up? Yes, absolutely. I think that coming from a context that was more diverse, I was able to see a lot of the hurt and the pain that was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, whereas a lot of other students tend to come from very isolated white communities, mm. and that leads them to not see a lot of the microaggressions that are occurring um, either by their own doing or by that are occurring just around them. Understood. And so then you took on this project uh, called Listen, a collection of stories from voices that need to be heard. Tell us about the project. What is it? Yes. So Listen came about as I took a course at Moody um, on black liberation theology. It was during a directed study of mine, which is where um, I came together with a professor at my school and we crafted a course uh, uh -huh. around something that I desired to learn about. And um, it was me along with two other students. Um, and we met with this professor and um, read a series of books and discussed those books, um, all revolving around uh, black theology and black liberation theology. Mm. And um, at the end of the semester, we were asked to either write a paper on a topic or uh, do a creative project. And so I decided to capstone my class by creating this book. Um, I interviewed 10 uh, African-American students at my school, mm -hmm. asking them about their life, about where they grew up, their role models, how they got to Moody, and 
how their experience has been at Moody and then where they desire to go afterwards. I'm joined today by Allie Eastham. She's the author of a project called Listen. It's a collection of stories uh, from voices that need to be heard. She's talking about Moody Bible Institute, where she is a senior there. Uh, and as a as a white gal, a white young lady, she uh, really wanted to hear the voices of some African-American students. So, um, Allie, you took a course uh, called Black Liberation Theology. Who are some of the people that you read, and how did that uh, study impact you? Yeah, so we um, read a variety of books uh, by different authors, some more historical by Lerone Bennett, Jr., um, before the Mayflower, and then we also read books such as uh, The Christian Imagination by William James Jennings, who is a professor at Yale, and also um, Black Liberation, Black Theology and Black Power, as well as The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. Mm-hmm. And those books were very impactful for me. I think that over the time of the course, I was able to see that each person has their own particular perspective of who God is and how they've met him in their experiences and their circumstances. Mm. And hearing from the voices of people like Cone and Bennett and James um, and Jennings, um, I was able to truly just get a glimpse of what the African-American perspective is towards God. And um, I think that in learning so much about that, mm-hmm. I was able to see how important that perspective was. Um, and mm. especially for me being a white person, um, to just listen and to see that I need to learn from that as well. I need to listen to that as well. And it is beautiful and it's something that can often be unheard or uh, ignored. It's Christian education, multiculturalism, and racial reconciliation from a white gal's perspective. And that white gal is right here with me. I've known her all of her life. Her family's been a part of Bridgeway Community Church from the time she was born to now. I'm so proud of her. She's a senior at Moody Bible Institute. And even though there's only a 5% uh, rate of African-Americans there, she kind of felt uh, the empathy to say, you know what, what's going on here? So you um, did this self-directed course on uh, black liberation theology. For our listeners who may not have ever heard uh, those three words put together before, uh, black liberation theology, what is it and is it valid? Yes, so I would not say that I can speak to the whole of black liberation theology, but from what I have gleaned and what I have learned, Black liberation theology is uh, the approach of ap- African Americans to God as liberator. For uh, as I was learning in the book *The Cross and the Lynching Tree* by James Cone, um, just as you're able to look to Jesus as an innocent, an innocent man who died on the cross, and seeing the similarities between him and the innocent lives that were lost um, in the lynchings during mm-hmm. slavery, I think that. Um, just seeing how God can be a God to people through suffering and through certain experiences and circumstances, but how he is coming again to liberate them from the oppression and the suffering um, that has been caused and is still occurring um, to them today. So it really is a theology that's really based on the culture of the way African-Americans would see Jesus and see God, which can be completely different 
or at least uh, from a different prism, maybe from a white perspective of theology. Would you like to speak to that as well? What, how would you define that? Yeah. So during this course, I think in learning about black liberation theology, I was just thinking about how important it is, but how often black liberation theology among with other liberation theologies can be regarded as lower than more major theologies. Mm -hmm. But when you think about what the major theologies are and who they're crafted by, they're mostly crafted by white theologians. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about theology, we have to think about it in its proper context of being white theology, but we don't call it that. Mm. And I think that as we look at black liberation theology, it like we need to elevate the voices of um, minority groups and see them as equally as important as white theologians. Mm. 888-432-7434. My lines are now open. I'm with Ms. Allie Easton. She's a senior at Moody Bible Institute where I went uh, in Chicago, Illinois, and she collected stories from African-Americans that were students there, and we'll dive into that in just a second. I'm thinking about my white listeners right now, uh, Allie, people who are just like yourself. Uh, they're driving in their cars. They're sitting at home. Uh, they're in front of their smartphone or computer, and they're hearing this, and they're thinking, no, um, theology is theology. Why are you, why are you uh, calling it black or, or white? Why are you bringing up the race issue? What is... Um, uh, what are your thoughts? How do you minister to or help our white brothers and sisters uh, see this as you are a, a white uh, young lady who studied this? This can create a fragility, a guilt, a shame. It can create a uh, we're being divisive. But is it possible that people have been learning their theology for so long from a white perspective but never called it that, that this could be disruptive right now? Yeah. I, I think it is something that can be seen as being disruptive or divisive, mm -hmm. but I think that if we try to forget it or to sweep it under the rug, that it'll just continue to create problems and we'll be dismissing the issue that is at hand. Mm -hmm. But I think that in order to truly address issues such as these and to see people for who they are and who God has created them to be, we need to remember our history. We need to remember um, the perspectives of people who are different than us. Well, let's go on to, st uh, on to Stafford, Virginia. We have Anonymous who's on the road there. Hey, Anonymous, Dr. Anderson and Ms. Allie Eastham hanging out. How you doing? I'm good, doctor. How are you? Excellent. Thank you, sir. What are you thinking today? I'm so impressed with this young lady and her desire truly do what her writing says, which was to listen. Mm. And truly, that's all African-Americans have ever asked, is that our white brothers and sisters listen. We know that they're sick and tired of hearing this, this topic, as you can tell by the fact that nobody's blowing up your phone. You know, they don't want to talk about this anymore because they believe that they had nothing to do with it. Mm. And the fact that it should be a dead issue by now, everybody's equal, Every the playing field is equal, why do we keep talking about this? But one day they're going to wake up and realize that the playing field isn't equal, mm -hmm. that you just don't cause a group of people to suffer for the number of years that African-Americans have suffered. Turn them loose one day and say, now go be normal. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. And until they realize that even as they looked at us in our homes today, 
when you see that the lack of men in the homes, when you date that back to the white slave masters who used to walk in at any time and take our wives from us, we couldn't even call them our wives, just the women that we were breeding with, that we had to detach ourselves from our children, from our women, because the pain would have been too much emotionally. And so a lot of things that they believe are dead and buried mm. are still spiritually relevant today, mm. still affecting us as a community. Yeah. And until they're willing to acknowledge that, nothing will change. Thank you, Anonymous. I appreciate your comments. Allie, when you were talking to African Americans at Moody Bible Institute, did you get a sense of this divide that this caller's talking about where they feel it deeply, they're very much connected to the pain and the suffering that came from slavery in the African American community and then this other side of the divide of people who dismiss it and feel like you should be getting over it? Yes, I... I think that through some of these interviews, I was able to see how this pain and hurt continues to happen. And I think that in our dismissal of some of these issues or some of the history that has occurred, we continue to be ignorant and blind um, to our own actions or to um, the hurt and pain that our brothers and sisters are going through. And um, on the other side of that, I was able to hear about um, experiences at my own school where people are just unaware. And I have heard people talk about how white privilege is a myth and um, just not acknowledging some of those um, crucial, crucial facts. You've been listening to Real Talk with Dr. David Anderson, Weekend Edition, a ministry of Bridgeway Community Church. We would love to have you join us at Bridgeway in our Performing Arts Theater in Columbia, Maryland, for one of our three identical Sunday services at 8 a.m., 10 a.m., and noon. Or join us online at www.bridgeway.cc. Real Talk with Dr. David Anderson airs live weekdays on this station and is ready to take your calls. Tune in at 3 p.m. weekdays on WAVA 105.1 FM. We hope to see you tomorrow at church.